بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين وأفضل الصلاة وأتم التسليم على سيدنا محمد الصادق الأمين وعلى آله وصحبه ومن استنى بسنته إلى يوم الدين اللهم علمنا ما ينفعنا وانفعنا بما علمتنا وزدنا من فضلك علما وتعليما إنك على كل شيء قدير وبعد الحمد لله We are now at module 9 and you can't see the slides but we'll get the slides up in a second Module 9 is about the halal and the haram and we're going to divide module 9 into several parts so there's 9.0 tonight 9.1, 9.2, 9.3 each of these is one session but we're dividing them up by theme on the matters of halal and haram so as you see from the cover of these slides there are four pictures what can you identify in these four pictures gossiping backbiting alcohol meat matters music so this is all about halal and haram now if you've ever been to a Sunday school for young children what is the most common Islamic phrase you will hear from Sunday school children the, everything is haram actually I think that's number two number one is wallahi and number two is that is haram you often hear kids talking to each other in the hallways Oh, that's haram. My mother said that's haram. So-and-so said that's haram. Well, guess what? If you go on social media, on platforms that are used by adults, it's not any better. It's not any better. Because adults who go on social media platforms, on Twitter, on godforsaken TikTok, or other things, they get the same kind of stuff. This is haram, this is haram, that is haram, this is halal, maybe. So there's a lot of carelessness when it concerns matters of halal and haram. So tonight's class, module 9.0, is really an introduction to the concept of halal and the concept of haram. And what I want to do is introduce eight important principles eight important principles for understanding the nature of halal and haram and there are more principles than these eight that we'll cover later but these are the most important ones we should know before we look at what is halal and haram in the various facets of life okay so let us begin Bismillah. So we want to get our bearings and establish foundations. And we start with a question. What is the default ruling concerning things? Did someone say haram? The default is that things are halal. We've established that early on in the Fartaim program. We gave you the principle al-aslu fil ashya al-ibaha the default concerning things is permissibility that is the default concerning all matters and this is based on the quran where allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says huwa alladhi khalaqa lakum ma fil ardi jami'a it is he who created all things on the earth for you so what is haram is an exception to that general permissibility. Likewise, Allah Ta'ala says, asking this question, قُلْ مَنْ حَرَّمَ زِينَةَ اللَّهِ الَّتِي أَخْرَجَ لِعِبَادِهِ وَالطَّيِّبَاتِ مِنَ الرِّزْقِ Say, he's instructing the Prophet Wasallam to say, who may prohibit the adornment of Allah that he brought forth for his servants? and the wholesome provision. 
the mafhum, the understanding of this verse is that these things are halal by default. And what is haram is an exception from that general rule that things are permissible. So that is our starting point. But as you learn these foundations, you begin to layer details on top of them. As you layer more and more knowledge on top of those foundations, you learn that, yes, this is a a correct principle, it's a correct maxim. However, there are details, there are sometimes exceptions, there are sometimes differences of opinion about the applicability of some of these principles. And we'll get to all of that, inshallah, in due time. So we say that in the deen of Islam, the sphere of the haram is very small, while the permissible is very vast. It is very important that we are clear on this. Most importantly for our children and for the youth. Because they often get the impression that everything is haram, except for a limited number of things that they are allowed to partake in. And this is very damaging in the long run. Because they begin to see Islam as this super restrictive, smothering thing that they, are, they, just, they can't wait to get out of when they get some measure of freedom. So you have to communicate to your children that no, the haram things are very limited. The halal is very expansive and vast. It's just the nature of the world we're in today where the haram is made to seem more beautiful and appeasing, uh, uh, appealing and the avenues of halal are narrowed and made more difficult. That's a societal problem. So nothing is haram except what is prohibited by a sound and explicit revealed text. You see that on the slide. I want to add a little bit to this. Because as you'll see soon, using the word haram is very, very dangerous. And we have to be very careful in calling things haram. The ulama say that because the default is permissibility, nothing is haram except what is prohibited by a nas. A nas meaning a sound and explicit revealed text within the Qur'an or within the Sunnah. Now of course, there are things prohibited that are not found mentioned directly in the Qur'an and the Sunnah, but those things bear a strong enough likeness to things prohibited in the Qur'an that they're prohibited to. We talked about that in the previous module. So for example, certain uh, certain forms of riba uh, are not exactly, they weren't exactly prohibited uh, in the Qur'an or in the Sunnah in the exact shape or form they take today, but they bear sufficient likeness that they are grouped within those things. We'll get to that later. So although the principle, al-aslu fil al-ibaha, the general rule, the default is permissibility, that's a generally sound principle. There are some exceptions. In module, it was module 7, wasn't it? We mentioned two exceptions to this principle. What are the two exceptions that we talked about? So the default is everything is halal, except for f- not meat and intimacy. Intimacy, right? So the default for those two is prohibition until it is established clearly that they come from a lawful source. So there we have an exception to the rule. And that exception exists. Does this mean that with uh, minus those two things, we can just go out and partake of anything we want as a free-for-all? Unless we know for sure it's haram. Not really, because we as Muslims must not do something until we know the ruling of Allah concerning it. So the ruling of Allah concerning many, many things is permissibility. 
But we need to make sure that's the case and not something haram or something makru and so on. So you learn that through general principles, right? Fruits and vegetables, those are open-ended and halal, right? Grains and so on, open-ended halal. You don't have to inquire after knowing that basic rule. But if something is a, is a bit questionable, you're not sure about the ruling, you should not partake of that thing until you find out what the ruling is. So the principle is true, but we still have to make sure we know what we're getting into when we partake of things. So that is principle one. I want to give you, inshallah, eight principles. Here's the list right here. So the first principle is that the default of things is permissibility. And we've covered that enough in the past. The next principle concerning halal and haram is that Allah Ta'ala alone has the right of legislation to make halal and make haram. Haqqut tashri'ah. The right to make halal and the right to make haram belong exclusively to Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala. Allah Ta'ala, the creator of the heavens and the earth, is the shari'ah. He is the lawgiver. And he is the only lawgiver. We refer to the Prophet ﷺ as the Shari' as well, but that is because he is conveying the do's and don'ts, the halal and the haram, from the Shari', the legislator, the lawmaker. So, because tashri' legislation is the right of Allah alone, exclusive to Him, that means that no one. Not a single soul has the right to make something haram or halal. And this is spoken about at length within the Qur'an when Allah Ta'ala addresses some of the practices of the jahili Arabs who would make certain things halal that were haram and certain things haram that were halal. Uh, likewise with other communities. For instance, we have in the verse أَمْ لَهُمْ شُرَعُوا لَهُمْ مِنَ الدِّينِ مَا لَمْ بِهِ Or do they have partners who legislated in the religion that which Allah did not permit? So if someone takes it upon themselves to declare things halal or haram independent of Allah, they're not conveying the hukum of Allah, they're making up their own legislation, this is a huge problem. This is something that takes one outside of the fold of Islam, generally. So it is the haqq of Allah. It is not the right of anyone to abolish, to get rid of, to legislate over any of the ahkam, the rulings of Allah Ta'ala. And this is self-explanatory. Now we see that the Qur'an, in addition to blaming the jahili idol worshippers in the time of the Prophet Allah Ta'ala also blamed the Jews and the Christians in their communities for giving over the legislative power to some of the rabbis and priests. Allah Ta'ala says They took their rabbis and their monks as lords besides Allah. And this is in the sense of giving them the, the right to make things halal and make things haram. Not coming from a divine authority, but literally making up laws and legislating, making halal and haram. So Allah condemns them for this practice. Allah condemns the idol worshippers of Jahiliyyah for legislating and prohibiting things without authority from Allah. In Surah Al-An'am, the sixth chapter of the Quran, you see a lot of these details. Allah Ta'ala speaks about a lot of the jahidi practices where they would legislate or declare certain things uh, haram that are halal or, har- or halal that are haram. Allah Ta'ala says, قُلْ أَرَأَيْتُمْ مَا أَنزَلَ اللَّهُ لَكُمْ مِنْ رِزْقٍ فَجَعَلْتُمْ مِنْهُ حَرَامًا وَحَلَالًا قُلْ اللَّهُ أَذِنَ لَكُمْ أَمْ عَلَى اللَّهِ تَفْتَرُونَ Do you see that 
Allah has sent down to you provision and then you make some of it haram and some of it halal, say to them, did Allah permit that for you or are you inventing a lie against Allah? So they would say, this is haram, this is halal, uh, this is for our idols, it's halal for the idols, it's haram for this one and that one. They would make up these rules, this kind of legislation. And speaking broadly, Allah Ta'ala says, وَلَا تَقُولُوا لِمَا تَصِفُوا أَلْسِنَتُكُمُ الْكَذِبَ هَذَا حَلَالٌ وَحَذَا حَرَامٌ لِتَفْتَرُوا عَلَى اللَّهِ الْكَذِبِ إِنَّ الَّذِينَ يَفْتَرُونَ عَلَى اللَّهِ الْكَذِبَ لَا يُفْلِحُونَ Do not say with your tongues, do not utter a lie with your tongues, saying that this is halal and this is haram, inventing a lie against Allah. For those who invent lies against Allah will not succeed. So this is a principle. How does this impact the way we look at halal and haram as Muslims? We see the impact in how the early fuqaha dealt with matters of halal and haram. Because you see, unlike a lot of modern day Muslims who are very quick to throw out that word haram, the early fuqaha were not quick to use that word. In fact, they would look for ways to avoid using that word when possible. So the ulama, they always emphasize that the jurist, the faqih, the mufti, the one giving rulings in sharia, his job is only to explain what Allah has made halal or haram. The fuqaha are not like the ahbar and the ruhban of Ahlul Kitab. They don't legislate. The jurist does not legislate. The mufti does not legislate. They convey the hukum of Allah. That's what a fatwa is, by the way. The fatwa is conveying the hukum of Allah in a particular issue. That's it. Right? Now, there's a really beautiful passage mentioned by one of the great early imams, Imam Muhammad ibn Idris al-Shafi'i, rahimahullah, one of the great four imams. And he is recording this in his um. It's not his statement. He's recording it in al um from Imam Abu Yusuf, who is Ahadu Sahibain, one of the two companions of Imam Abu Hanifa, who was a great mujtahid master scholar in his own right. So Imam Abu Yusuf, rahimahullah, he says that I witnessed that our knowledgeable teachers avoided saying this is halal and that is haram apart from what they found clearly stated without requiring an interpretation in the book of Allah. Meaning something very muhkam, very clear cut. He goes on to say that some of the companions of Ibrahim al-Nakha'i, another great imam, some of his colleagues and students told us that when they gave a judgment concerning something, they would say, it is disapproved. Or they would say, la ba'tsa bihi, there's no harm in it. Rather than saying, uh, it is haram or it is halal. So they would use terms like, it is, there's no problem with it, instead of saying halal. Or they would say, mm, I dislike it, instead of saying haram. Or as we see here, Imam Madik would be quoted repeatedly in uh, the Muwatta, or rather in the Mudawwana, quoted repeatedly saying, when asked about something being halal or haram, he'll say, I don't like it, or I disapprove of it, or uh, it doesn't appeal to me, or things like this. He would avoid saying haram as to the best of his ability. And the things that they would call haram would be the things clear-cut, binassan sarih, with something that's clear-cut in its authenticity and in its unequivocal understanding. Right? Of course, there are some exceptions, but that was the general rule because they did not like using the term halal and haram. When you give a ruling about something being halal or haram, you are, it's as if you are signing off something on behalf of the Creator. You're signing off 
on behalf of the creator of the heavens and the earth, saying that that thing is prohibited or that thing is permissible, right? That's, that's why uh, you have a book about this craft uh, by Ibn Qayyim called I'lam al-Muwaqi'een. Uh, it's a book for those who are signing on behalf of Allah, talking about halal and haram. So this is very important to understand that legislation of halal and haram is the haq of Allah exclusively. Okay, the next principle is that prohibiting the halal and permitting the haram is one of the greatest sins. The Prophet ﷺ tells us in a hadith Qudsi recorded by Imam Muslim in his Sahih that Allah Jalla wa'ala said, I created my servants Hunafa. Hunafa means they're upright. Then the evil ones came to them and led them astray from their religion and forbade what I had made lawful for them and enjoined them to associate with me that for which I had not sent down any authority. So here the Allah Jalla Jalaluhu is saying that people were created upright and then they were corrupted by corruptors who corrupt them how? To lead them astray from their deen and to forbid things that Allah had made lawful for them. So anyone who's doing that is essentially joining with those shayateen in making the uh, halal haram or the haram halal. So because that's connected with tashri'ah, with legislation, to prohibit the halal or to uh, make uh, the halal haram, that would be akin to associating oneself as a partner with Allah Ta'ala. Shirk billah, because one is legislating. Likewise, there's an important term that we learn in the law called istihlal. Istihlal, it comes from the word halal, and it means to make halal what Allah has made haram. Or to make haram, make halal what the messenger has made haram. To do that, you know, a person sees a ruling in the Quran. It is clearly haram. And they say, no, actually it's halal. What's going on there? What are they doing? They are denying the ruling of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. It is clearly in the Quran. It says that thing is haram. They say, well, I think it's halal. So they are denying what Allah ta'ala says, the creator of the heavens and the earth, about it being haram. And they put forward their view that it is halal. That is kufr billah. It is an act of disbelief because the person is basically engaged in takdeeb. They are denying what Allah Ta'ala has said. So a person who finds something that is explicitly haram, I don't mean things that people differ over. I mean things like the prohibition of alcohol, the prohibition of zina, the prohibition of homosexuality, uh, these clear-cut haram actions, if they say, no, they're halal, that istihlal of theirs takes them outside of the fold of Islam. This is why you have to be very careful. So that is the third principle. The fourth principle, how many are there, I said? Eight. Eight. You're good, you're paying attention. So the fourth principle is the prohibition of things is due to their impurity and harm. Right, so if we summarize this, Allah Ta'ala is not making things haram just to make our lives inconvenient. Allah does not make this and that haram just to keep us from having fun. That's not why. Allah Ta'ala, as we establish, has the right of legislation. That means that He can make halal whatever He wills. He can make haram whatever He wills. لَا يُسْأَلُ عَمَّا يَفْعَلْ وَهُمْ يُسْأَلُونَ He is not asked about what He does, but they are asked. Nevertheless, there is nothing that Allah Ta'ala has made haram that is good, that is wholesome and pure. There is nothing, you cannot find anything that is wholesome in itself, 
that is pure in itself and Allah has made it haram. But everything is haram, that is haram is haram because of its impurity and because of its harm. Allah does, does not permit things that are uh, impure and harm. That's it. This is important to understand, again, going back to that earlier point regarding the sphere of haram being limited and the sphere of halal being very expansive. Likewise, nothing is haram except that it's harmful and impure. And nothing is, that, is, that is wholesome and good is considered haram. So that means that if anything is uh, haram, there is impurity associated with it, there are harms associated with it, even if we have not even recognized what those harms are. Maybe we haven't discovered what the harms are, but there are harms. In our short-sighted vision, we may not understand the harms of this and that haram thing. Kind of like a child, a young toddler who doesn't understand the danger of putting their hand near the eye of a stove. The parent may yell at them or swat their hand away, and in their limited vision, that seems like a bad thing. Why would you keep me from having fun? But as they get older, they quickly realize that the reason why is because that thing is harmful to me. So as human beings, we have a very limited uh, scope of understanding about some of these realities. So nothing that is wholesome is made haram. And nothing that is haram is ever wholesome. Right? So what about, someone may ask, well, if you, if you, if you say that nothing that is wholesome is haram, what about when Allah made certain things haram to Bani Israel? Allah made certain things that are good and wholesome uh, forbidden to Bani Israel. You know the answer. They were punished. So that is the reason why. He did forbid some tayyibat, some good things to Bani Israel, but that was a punishment for their transgressions. This is mentioned explicitly within the Qur'an. فَبِظُلْمٍ مِنَ الَّذِينَ هَادُوا حَرَّمْنَا عَلَيْهِمْ طَيِّبَاتٍ أُحِلَّتْ لَهُمْ وَبِصَدِّهِمْ عَنْ سَبِيلِ اللَّهِ كَثِيرًا So Allah says that He forbade the Jews certain foods, and these foods had been lawful to them uh, before, but they were now made haram because of their zulm, their wrongdoing, and because of them hindering many people from the path of Allah. So, those things were good. What about alcohol? That was permitted to the previous nations, wasn't it? But it's not for us. So does that mean it was wholesome? Well, here we, see, we have a principle in Islam. When the harm is outweighing the benefit, you default to it being prohibited, as we'll discuss. So that wouldn't be an exception either. But that's just the, the principle we have in Islam of the harms and benefits weighing up. And you, if it's harmful more than it is beneficial, then its rule is haram. So the fourth principle is what? That the things that are haram are haram because of their impurity and harm. This is so important to understand. Allah Ta'ala is not making these things haram to make our lives difficult, to prevent us from enjoying ourselves. Right? It's this mindset shift. Now, here, continuing with principle four, we have this very beautiful verse in Surah Al-A'raf that explains the role of the Messenger of Allah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. Allah describes the believers in this verse, saying, "Al-Ladina yattabi'oon al-Rasul al-Nabi al-Ummi al-Ladhi yajidunahu maktuban 'indahum fi al-Tawrat wal-Injil." يأمرهم بالمعروف وينهاهم عن المنكر ويحل لهم الطيبات ويحرم عليهم الخبائث ويضع عنهم إصرهم والأغلال التي كانت عليهم. So Allah describes the believers and says that they are the ones who follow the messenger, the Nabi, the Prophet, the Ummi, 
the unlettered primordial one, whose description they find in the Torah and the Gospel. These are the believers from Ahlul Kitab. He commands them to do good and forbids them from evil. He permits for them what is lawful and forbids to them what is impure and relieves them from their burdens and the shackles that bound them. This ayah is very beautiful because it lays out the basic function of the sharia of Rasulullah to command the good and forbid the evil to make halal that which is tayyib that which is pure and wholesome and to forbid that which is impure khabith and to relieve from them the previous burdens and shackles that were bound on them so the burdens that were upon Bani Israel, the things that were made haram for them, that were burdensome as a punishment, those things are lifted. So Muslims can have cheeseburgers. Do you know that proper Orthodox Jews can't eat cheeseburgers technically? Do you know why? Meat and dairy can't be mixed. Uh, Orthodox Jews who are really strict about following their kashrut, their, basically their laws of halal and haram, they will have separate freezers, separate fridges. One will have dairy, the other will have meat and the, these things. They won't combine them in a single fridge. So, so that was a burden. When you become a Muslim, if you're coming from the Jewish community, you can have a cheeseburger now. <laughs> All right. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala did not prohibit good things as a punishment for us. He legislated repentance, good deeds wipe away bad deeds, charity wipes away the effects of sins, tribulations, trials, difficulties wipe away the effects of sins. So, what is made haram for us is just the bad stuff, right? It, so, it's not that Allah Ta'ala has legislated making certain things haram for us to punish us, to make things difficult, to wipe away the effects of sins, right? That's not how it is in Sharia. The halal is halal, and it's good and wholesome, and the haram is haram, and it's not wholesome. That's it. So that means that we have certain knowledge that there is nothing in the haram that's good for us. Now we may fall into the haram because it is made attractive, it is adorned, and shaitan whispers to us, and we have bad friends and peer pressure, and we succumb to societal pressures and do things that we shouldn't do. We're human beings after all. But with this understanding... We, un, we look at haram and realize that nothing in it is good for us. Nothing. There's nothing we're missing in the haram that would actually make our life better. Maybe it'll make it fun in a very limited sense, but that is creating long-term damage if we don't arrest that and get rid of it and make tawbah. So, when it concerns the impurity of the haram, we, we may not know why or how a particular haram thing is harmful. We may not know. We may assume that there are certain reasons why this haram thing is not good for us. Some things are very obvious. Some things are less so. Why is eating pork haram? We know it's haram, but why? Did anyone, I mean, is there any verse in the Quran or any hadith which explains the reasoning behind the prohibition of eating pork? 
There's no verse. There's no verse of Quran. There's no hadith which says, this is why pork, eating pork is haram. We look at the quality of, of pork and we see it carries lots of parasites and this and that. And it, it's, it's a health risk for people. But what, you know, what if, what if someone said, okay, we'll, we'll get rid of all the parasites. We'll, we'll feed it. We'll keep it really clean and we'll bathe it every single day and we'll keep all the najasa away from it and we'll make sure it has no parasites and we'll, we'll feed it organic foods and, and then when we slaughter it, it's going to be clean and good to eat, right? Still haram. So is eating pork haram just because of those health reasons? On the day of judgment, we'll find out. You know, we'll find out the reasoning. But uh, our obedience to Allah Ta'ala is not conditional upon us understanding the nature of the harms associated with eating pork. And the same for other things that are haram. If something is haram in the Qur'an and the Sunnah, our role as believers is سَمِعْنَا وَأَطَعْنَا We hear and we obey. We stay away from this thing. Whether or not we know the harms associated with it. If we know the harms or it's readily discernible, Alhamdulillah, we have clear reasons for it. If we don't, we still stay away from it because it is about hearing and obeying. So these are just a few principles that are important to understand regarding halal and haram. There's more. Principle number five. The halal is sufficient and the haram is superfluous. So al-halal is kafi, it's sufficient, it's enough. And the haram is beyond what a person actually needs in this life. Allah Ta'ala has only forbidden things that are harmful and also unnecessary. There's nothing haram that a person can say is necessary in their daily life. You have a question? Yeah, I, uh, Surah Baqarah has flesh of swine and bin haram. Yes. Yes. But does it explain the reason? The Quran mentions that the flesh of swine is haram. Yep. But does it mention the the illa, the re, the legal rationale behind it? It doesn't mention it. It's associated with khaba'ith, with impurities. So we can draw a clear line between pork and impurities, but the health things, the parasites, none of that's mentioned. So that's the point I'm getting at. So Allah Ta'ala has forbidden things that are, har- uh, har- that are harmful and also unnecessary. There's nothing necessary in the haram that we actually need. So for everything that is haram, we have a halal alternative. We have a halal alternative already in sharia. So for example, omens, superstitious beliefs, the black cat crossing my path, the crows flew right or they flew left, this, that, the other, you know, all these superstitions. Should I go on this trip or not? I'll see which way the crows fly. This is called tiyara. This is haram. Instead of that, we have istikhara. That is your way of making a decision. Istikhara literally means seeking to make a choice between two matters. So you have this thing that's haram, and now you have a halal alternative. Not only is it halal, it's praiseworthy, and it's an act of worship. Riba is haram, but trade is halal. وَأَحَلَّ اللَّهُ الْبَيْعَةِ وَحَرَّمَ riba. Allah says in Surah Al-Baqarah, He has permitted trade and prohibited riba. Gambling is haram, but wagers are more or less halal. All things considered, they're halal. If you pitch in money into a pool and say, you know, whoever wins this race will win this money, that's not, a, that's not gambling but it's something akin to it in an indirect way where there's no gharar, there's no qimar, nothing like that. 
fornication is haram. What's the halal alternative? It's marriage. Adultery is haram. And the halal alternative is polygamy. So we separate here between fornication and adultery because fornication is between two unmarried people. So the haram is fornication, the alternative is zawaj. Adultery is when it's between one or two married people. So if it's the man, then the halal alternative to that is him getting a second wife. Right? Unfortunately, it's because it's a very it's a hot button topic, right? Um, unfortunately, there are many Muslims who would be more angry to find out that a Muslim man married a second wife than him having a mistress. The, having a mistress is more acceptable, not just in this society, but in many other Muslim societies. That is more acceptable than him getting a second wife. And I'm not here talking about polygamy, by the way. I'm just using that as an example of a halal alternative to adultery. Right? Intoxicants are haram. The alternative is wholesome drinks. You can have wholesome drinks. And there's lots of them. Carry on is haram. Meita. You know, animals that aren't killed properly. And the alternative, halal, wholesome meats. So Allah Ta'ala is legislating these things. Decreeing that this thing is halal and this thing is haram. And it's all for our benefit. It's all for our maslaha. We have to understand that. Allah is not denying you or me anything to make our lives difficult or to keep us from enjoying our life. Everything that He has made halal is good for us in the proper measure. And everything that is haram is bad for us. Even if we don't sense a harm in the immediate, even if we engage in the haram in that moment and don't experience a harm, the harm is down the road. Or it's a spiritual harm that has a cascading effect in weakening our iman, deadening our heart, and darkening it, and so on. Alright? Okay, next few principles are pretty quick. Uh, principle number six. What leads to the haram is haram itself. We talked about this in the last class of the previous module. Being a means to haram for someone else. In the different categories. Allah Ta'ala blocks the avenues that lead to the haram as well. We look at the example of zina. Fornication is haram. It's a major sin. Not only does our Creator forbid zina, not only does He make it haram, He makes haram the avenues that lead to it. Those means those things that open the doors that make it easier to fall into. Those means are also forbidden. Allah Ta'ala says in the Qur'an, لَا تَقْرَبُ zina." Do not come close to zina. He doesn't just say don't do it. He says don't come close to it. Which means also don't come close to those avenues and doors that lead to it. And this is how we understand uh, many of the other prohibitions in the Sharia, such as the prohibition of improper gender interaction, right? Ikhtilat, muharram, the improper uh, interaction between men and, and women uh, in secluded places or even public places for that matter. Seclusion, khalwa, with a non-mahram, you know, an unrelated man to be alone in a room with an unrelated woman. What's the big deal? You know, why are we assuming that everyone is sex obsessed? Well, we're human beings and we have instincts. And surely in the case of person A and person B, they don't have that intention. But once you open that door and you don't put these safeguards in place, things will happen eventually, maybe not between person A and person B, but others. And how many times has that happened in, in this world? Uh, 
people want to uh, ask, how did this happen? Well, doors that Allah had closed, you opened. The door, these things that were made haram, you opened those doors. And you succumb to the haram as a result. So Allah Ta'ala blocks the means to zina just as He blocks or for, for, uh, forbids zina itself. And the same goes for many other haram things. You have the thing itself that's haram, and many of the means to that haram are also blocked. So when we talk about halal and haram, we're not just looking at the, the actions themselves, but also other actions that facilitate them. Right? So that could be, as we mentioned here, seclusion with a non-mahram. Or it could be helping someone else to do the haram, as we talked about in the previous class. So this is why helping people do the haram is haram. Because Allah blocks those means. The means of the haram are haram as well. Alright, so that was six, right? Alright, number seven, the, the seventh principle is that falsely representing the haram as halal is prohibited. Basically, to play word games, to play games with the religion, to change the meanings of words whereby something haram is deemed halal through a word game, that is haram too. It is haram to play games with the deen. It is haram to try to change words around to make something halal that is haram. The Prophet ﷺ says in the famous hadith recorded by Imam Ahmad, a group from my ummah will make intoxicants halal by giving them another name. What other names do we have for intoxicants? Well, we have beer, we have wine, we have spirits, right? Right? Al-mashrubat, uh, right? You know, how would you, if you translated that literally, ruhiya is spirits, or you could say spiritual, spiritual drinks, instead of calling it for what it is. Khamar, something muskir, something that's an intoxicant. It's not just alcohol, by the way. It could be lots of other things, right? So we have to be careful with how people may misrepresent uh, changing words and redefining terms. And finally, the last principle. Good intentions do not make the haram acceptable. Can you go rob a bank with the intention of getting, giving the money in sadaqah? We don't have a concept of Robin Hood like this. Robin Hood is not following Sharia. You can't rob from the rich to give to the poor. You collect zakat from the rich to give to the poor. And if the rich who have to pay zakat refuse to pay the zakat, well, the Muslim leader can use force. This is what Abu Bakr Siddiq did in the Hurub Ridda. He fought those people who denied the zakat who refused to pay it that's the closest thing we have to robin hood so good intentions don't make things that are haram halal if you do something that is merely permissible say go to sleep sleeping you go to sleep permissible but you have a good intention behind it you go to sleep with the intention of getting some rest so you can get up for fajr on time. Now your sleep, which is just permissible, has now become ibadah, and you get a reward for it because of your intention. So what if something is halal, and there's a good intention behind it, it becomes praiseworthy. But if something is haram, and there's a good intention behind it, it doesn't become praiseworthy. It doesn't become praiseworthy because the ends do not justify the means. So if the means, so if the end, the objective, the end, if the end is halal, but the means are haram, 
then it's not praiseworthy. The means have to be halal and the ends have to be halal. That's how it works. You can't say, I'm going to do this haram thing, but I have a good heart, I have a good intention. It's okay because I have a good intention. You know, that is absolutely forbidden because Allah Ta'ala only accepts those things that are pure. Inna Allah tayyib wa la yaqbalu illa tayyiba. Allah is pure and only accepts what is pure. If something haram is done with a purported good intention, it's still haram. So that's a fairly straightforward principle. But it's important because people sometimes play these weird games where they say, Oh, you know, but you know, you don't know my intention. My intention is good. As long as your intention is good, that's all that matters. All that matters is what is in your heart. As long as your heart is clean, it's okay. That's batil. Because if the heart is pure, the action will be pure. If the heart is impure, then the impure action comes as a result. And if you want to purify the heart that is impure, you do what is pure that has an impact on the heart. And you avoid what is impure, which is going to further add impurity to the heart. It's very clear. There was someone on TikTok. I don't, have, I don't, I don't watch TikTok, guys. But some stuff comes to me. And I have this unfortunate, this unfortunate uh, position of having to answer questions that people send. Can you review this TikTok? Does this, is this correct? And this one person said, you know, it doesn't matter, you know, is, is, you just pray. Just make sure you pray. Even if, you know, you don't have wudu, even if you don't have this and that, even if you have nail polish still on, it doesn't matter. You know, if you need to pray, just pray because Allah looks at your heart. They're trying to encourage people to pray, but getting them to neglect the conditions of the prayer that renders the prayer valid. It's a very dangerous game. We want to call people to salat, of course, but you don't change the sharia just to encourage people to follow an important part of the sharia. That's like the old saying, we, we destroyed the town to save the city. We destroyed the city to save the city. You know, this country it has an enemy force. They're in the city compound. So we had to destroy the city in order to save the city. We have to undo the bonds of Islam and play these games with the deen in order to preserve the deen. That's not how it works. We have to be honest with people and compassionate, but honest with them first and foremost about these matters. So that ends my rant. But these are, inshallah, just some principles for looking at the notion of halal and haram. I think the biggest takeaway from all of these principles, like, you know, most people don't remember more than three things in a list. So if you forget them, it's okay. The most important takeaway is that Allah Ta'ala does not make things haram to make our lives difficult. It is for our benefit. And the sphere of haram is very limited while the sphere of halal is very expansive. And for that we should be grateful so that when we learn about the halal and the haram, it is not just about learning do's and don'ts where you have a massive list of don'ts. Now next week you're going to see a, a massive list of don'ts. <laughs> but I want you to put that in perspective that it's a list of don'ts because everything else is halal. If you had to make a list of everything halal, how long would the list be? There's, you couldn't make that list, it's too long. So instead of making a list of what is halal, and the default is everything, we make a list of the haram so we can narrow that down, so we can make note of that, try to avoid them, and then focus on the rest of the things which are halal. Wallahu rasuluhu a'lam wa sallallahu wa sallam ala Sayyidina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa sallam. Any questions? Yes. But in that 
program, they have tickets, and then um, they have invited the singer just for the entertainment. Mm. So is it, are we allowed to, I mean, you said that we can, any means, that is going to be to, I mean, I mean, singing, everyone is sitting, and that, that's for entertainment. So would it come in that haram category? I mean, to be able I want to have that organization, mm -hmm. but at the same time, I don't want to attend that function because of the curricular thing that's going to happen. So right. So she's asking about the good intention in something that uses some unlawful means. Uh, your question is quite specific. So it, it, it appears to me that what you're describing is volunteering in an event that has lots of different activities, not all of which you are a part of or responsible for or involved in. So if it has lots of different things going on in it that are all good, and you're involved in the good of this general thing, this fundraiser, as you said, and someone else is in charge of some other thing that you disapprove of, or something, let's just say it's haram, if you voice your opposition to it and they don't listen to you, you can still participate in the, the halal things in this general project, right? I mean, that's a general answer. I mean, a more specific answer would have to look at the details, but... Yeah, it's, it appears to be sabab ghair mubashir that we talked about in the previous class. The indirect means perhaps. And if the money, uh, if a portion of it is going to that, but the majority is going to something else, this is, the, the, the wealth is mixed up, right? So it's not 100% haram. In the, uh, the money is not all, all dirty money, right? Just because they're setting aside some that they're giving to this person for performing in that way. Uh, Allah knows best. So this, if you, know, if you, without giving a fatwa, without giving a ruling on it, if it doesn't sit well with you, regardless of what I or anyone else tells you, then you should listen to your heart and sit out of it. If that makes you feel better and you feel that's more cautious, and there's a place for that. Well, and we're not enforcing that on others. We just don't feel comfortable. Then that's something you can do as well. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yes. Now, in savings accounts, you get interest. So somebody asked me this, like if a Muslim has a Muslim person has a savings account. How do you get rid of it? And how do you get rid of the interest? If you give it to, right. uh, you know, um, in charity, non-Muslim. Right. Would that be acceptable? Right. So if a person has a savings account and they accrue some interest and it's not their choice, it just happens because of the way the bank deals with it, that is dirty money. You, you have to get rid of it. You can't use it. And what I have heard from, I've heard two different things from my teachers. Uh, some of the mashayikh have said that because it's dirty money, get rid of it by spending it on a public project, something that's not going to a specific person. So that could be, I don't know, cancer research or fixing potholes in our roads or public works and the like. That's not going to a specific person to benefit them. This way, this, you're not giving it to a person who is then buying food or whatever with that dirty money. I've heard that from some of my mashayikh. Some of my teachers have also said, you are allowed to give it to a person, but if you give it to a person, you cannot give it with an intention of sadaqah. It has to be empty of any intention whatsoever. You, you, you cannot expect to get ajr, a reward from Allah Ta'ala, for giving that money to that person, because the money is not halal. But there's no one to take it, so you can give it. I've heard that from, from some teachers as well. 
the position that I incline to the most, not that it means that much, but my personal inclination is to get rid of that in public works because I wouldn't want someone to feel a certain way knowing that they're, maybe they're poor and they're taking money that comes from riba. I mean, if you imagine a person, they're, maybe they're poor and they're in need, but would they want to take money that they know is coming from riba? Maybe they wouldn't want to do that. So I would give it in something public, like a general donation. Most of the Muslims are checking accounts anyways. Yeah. I don't have a savings. I mean, checking account is what most of us have. Hmm. In case we do have a savings account. Yeah. Any other questions? All right. See you next week, inshallah. We only have two sessions before Ramadan. So we have the ears, the Muharramat al-Udhun, and the Muharramat al-Ain, the, the eyes. We'll cover those two, inshallah. And then after Ramadan, we have the big one, which is Muharramat al-Isam. That's the big one. <laughs>